0: 10 993 Wbt hour number two is my bad. I totally I sent Bernie out there to wait on our guest for the interview and it's at two o'clock it's not one o'clock <laughs> my bad. Michael Anderson is gonna join us at two all right let me get to this then um yeah it's totally my fault I'm sorry look I did the rescheduling because I had I had Michael Anderson he's running for State House I had him uh, booked for uh, one of the days when I went out sick, and so I had to reschedule, and I was—I may have been in a bit of a NyQuil-induced brain fog. So uh, anyway, uh, we'll have him in the next hour. Let me get to this. Because another story that happened while I was sick, again, I say don't break these things, and then I get stories that break. Get, sorry about that, Bernie. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Sent them out there to go wait on a guest. It's not due for another hour. Um, I was not a hazing thing, I promise. (laughs) All right. Um, This is another story that that popped uh, over the last few days. An event billed as a drag queen story hour for children as young as two at the North Carolina Museum of Art and funded in part by taxpayer dollars has reportedly been canceled amid community protest. This is the story at carolinajournal.com by Teresa Opeka, And uh, this was from... The 18th, so a week ago, and uh, the the event was called Artful Storytime. It was brought to light nationally with posts on Twitter and national radio shows. The original post by the Museum of Art, which has since been removed, said it was to be a quote lively storytime inspired by art and children's books, and was presented by Stormy Day, one of the drag queens from the House of. Uh mm, yeah, I don't think I'm gonna say that word. I mean it could be a last name. C O X. That's how it's spelled. But it has two X's. As if it's like rated XX. Get it? Moving on. The description of the story hour continues by saying it, quote, captures the imagination and play of the gender fluidity of childhood and gives kids glamorous, positive, and unabashedly queer role models. The museum said that kids can see people who, quote, defy rigid gender restrictions and imagine a a world where people can present as they wish, where dress-up is real. All right, so... That line, defy rigid gender restrictions, you're going to want to keep that line in mind because that line is actually the tell, okay? That is the tell. I'll explain, but I'm just going to finish out a couple of the highlights from this piece at carolinajournal.com by Teresa Opeka. It's unclear as to when the exact date of the event was to take place. However, the museum has hosted events like this in the past, including one in April, with this same dancer, and another in June, which was billed as Storytime in the garden. In an emailed statement to Carolina Journal, House Speaker Tim Moore said the event was canceled and removed from the museum's website thanks to the outcry from parents. He said that if such events become a trend, he will take action to ensure tax dollars are not used for such events. Almost $20 million was allocated to the museum in the North Carolina General Assembly final conference budget For the current fiscal year. $20 million for the art museum. That's what they're putting at risk here. Now. uh, First off I can tell you that. um, When you know. uh, Tim Moore says that if they become a trend. They are a trend. This is part of the trend. This is part of a larger effort underway. And I asked this question a couple of days ago. And it's almost like from my words. To Christopher Ruffo's ears. Because he answered the question. Over at City Journal. Christopher Rufo answered this question about a week ago. Again, I saw it while I was sick. I was very productive, even though I was like laying in bed for three days with my laptop. But uh yeah, I watched I had a lot of documentaries going, and then I would like fall asleep. And so I guess that counts as seeing the whole documentary, right? If I have it on while I sleep, it's kind of like the same thing. Anyway, um, Christopher Rufo did a huge write-up called the real story behind Drag Queen Story Hour. Because I asked a couple weeks ago, why does it seem like all of a sudden these things are happening? These things never used to happen. Why all of a sudden are they, are they happening? All right, well, there was another EAS test. I don't know that we got no alert on that either. There's no message coming down. That's, there's no test. We just get interrupted with that signal for some reason. Uh, don't know who heard it, if you if it came across on the uh, air or if it came across on the live stream or both, but uh, that's why if you just heard dead air, that's what was happening. There was an EAS signal that came down, and we have to take it. Anyway, so what was I saying? I don't even remember. I was sick. I was sitting in bed with the laptops. Oh, and Christopher Rufo, right. He did this, the real story behind the Drag Queen story hour. And why have these things all of a sudden become the thing to do. Here we go. This is what I was talking about. And then the, the, the response I see generally on social media from people on the left is that, well, the Republicans, the conservatives, they got all upset about this stuff. And when that happened, now the left is just doing more of them in order to own the cons, to own those, those conservatives, to stick it in their face, you know, but that's not really true. It doesn't. And it, it I never really believed that I, I don't, Seriously like I don't think that liberal parents, progressive parents, whatever, I don't think they're going to go out and try to find these these drag shows to take their 4-year-olds to in order to prove to their political adversaries that there's nothing wrong with this. Maybe there were some people that want to do that, but I can't believe that there's this mad rush all over the place to like I'm going to drag my kid to this hypersexualized event in order to show you that I'm more tolerant. I just I found it to be just hard to believe. So there's this piece that I come across and thank you to the people who sent it as well by Christopher Rufo at cityjournal.org. Drag Queen Story Hour pitches itself as a family-friendly event to promote reading, tolerance, and inclusion. In spaces like this, the organization's web there's an organization called Drag Queen Story Hour. It says, kids are able to see people who defy rigid gender restrictions and imagine a world, imagine a world, where everyone can be their authentic selves. What did the museum in North Carolina, what did the museum say? See people who defy rigid gender restrictions and imagine a world where people can, people can present as they wish. Same language, right? This is the same idea. It's the same marketing, same branding. This is the same effort. Many parents, even if they're reluctant to say it publicly, they have an instinctual distrust of adult men and women's clothing, dancing, and exploring sexual themes with their kids. The drag queen might appear as a comic figure, but he carries an utterly serious message. And what is it? It is the deconstruction of sex, the reconstruction of child sexuality, and the subversion of middle class family life. And this is not just some you know crazy rantings from a right winger. This is from the people who created it. This is what they say. And when people tell you why they do things and people tell you what they are, you should listen to them. right? When I tell you I'm a free market capitalist, you should listen to me. I believe in it. When I say my default position is towards freedom, I want limited government, listen to me. I'm telling you what I believe. So this ideology that drives the movement was born in the sex dungeons of San Francisco and incubated in the academy. And Rufo documents all of it. Again, this is not some rantings. This, literally the people who wrote the book about the uh, uh, radical gender theory, this is where they wrote their material from. They went to these BDSM sex parlors and stuff in San Francisco. And there's a whole hierarchy. This ties into, you've heard the term cis-normative, right? We've kind of mocked the term over the last few years as it kind of gained prominence in academia and is now being used by media folks and more and more politicians, the cis-male and all that, right? Cis-normative. It's this idea that society constructed all of these hierarchies, and cis is the one at the top. Cis-heteronormative, right? So in other words, straight Couples, straight heterosexual couples that are married with kids like that. That is a cis-heteronormative example. And there's this hierarchy. And what this radical gender theory and the drag show circuit is aimed at doing is to elevate the lower rungs of that hierarchy and reconstruct the hierarchy. That's what they say. That's their philosophy. That's their project. That they've been working on. I'll tell you all about it in a minute. a Couple of emails to Pete at the PeteCalendarshow.com. <laughs> Ellen says, okay, so to be fair, I think they should have heterosexual stripper reading hour. How is this any different? Love your show. Thank you, Ellen. Uh well, because that would be reinforcing cisnormative. Uh constructed sexuality. Uh, Chris says, Pete, another EAS break-in during your broadcast today. What a drag. (laughs) So, the Drag Queen story hour. Where did it come from? Why is it so prevalent all of a sudden? What's the deal with that? The ideology that drives the movement, according to Christopher Rufo at City Journal, was born in the sex dungeons of San Francisco and incubated in the academy. It's now being transmitted with official state support in a number of public libraries and schools across the U.S. By excavating the foundations of this ideology and sifting through the literature of its activists, parents and citizens can finally understand the new sexual politics and formulate a strategy for resisting it. Start with queer theory. The academic discipline born in 1984 with the publication of an essay by Gail Rubin called Thinking Sex, Notes for Radical Theory of the Politics of Sexuality. Beginning in the late 70s, Gail Rubin, a lesbian writer and activist, immersed herself in the subcultures of leather, bondage, orgies, and some other things, and sadomasochism, all of it in San Francisco, migrating through an ephemeral network of BDSM, which is bondage, domination, sadomasochism, these BDSM clubs, literary societies, New Age spiritualist gatherings. In this essay, Thinking Sex, Rubin sought to reconcile her experiences in the sexual underworld with the broader forces of American society, following the work of French theorist Michel Foucault. Because, of course, Rubin sought to expose the power dynamics that shaped and repressed human sexual experience. This was Foucault, I'm not going to get into Foucault, but like that modern Western societies, she wrote, appraise sex acts according to a hierarchical system of sexual value. Right. So this is the ranking, the order. Okay. marital, reproductive heterosexuals are alone at the top erotic pyramid, clamoring below are unmarried monogamous heterosexuals in couples, followed by most other heterosexuals. Stable, long-term lesbian and gay male couples are verging on respectability. But then what she calls bar dykes and promiscuous gay men are hovering just above the groups at the very bottom of the pyramid. The most despised sexual casts currently include, again, this is her word, uh, her, her use of these terms, Transsexuals, transvestites, fetishists, sadomasochists, sex workers such as prostitutes and porn models, and the lowliest of all, those whose eroticism transgresses generational boundaries. So, you know what that means, right? Transgresses generational boundaries. What does that mean? Kids. That's what she's talking about. And she goes in-depth on this. Rubin's project, and by extension, that of the Queer Theory Project, was to interrogate, deconstruct, and subvert the sexual hierarchy and usher in a world beyond limits, much like the one she had experienced in San Francisco, in the clubs. She argued, human sexuality is not comprehensible in pure biological terms. In other words, traditional conceptions of sex regarding it as natural behavior that reflects an unchanging order. This is all just mythology. It's designed to just rationalize and justify systems of oppression. See? That's all this is. It's just a false construct. It's just a construct, you know, like learning loss, according to our teachers' union president in the state. It's just a a construct. It's just devised by the oppressors to say, we're more important than you. We're more valuable than you. And we're going to oppress you because you have these different uh, sexual impulses. These, uh, there was uh, some reason to believe that Rubin could be right. I mean, the sexual revolution had been conquering territory for two decades by the time she came along with this stuff. There are historical periods in which sexuality is more sharply contested and more overtly politicized, she wrote. In such periods, the domain of erotic life is, in effect, renegotiated. So that's what they were doing. This is what she advocated. And following the practice of any good negotiator, right, you lay out their theory of the case and then make your maximum demands. The sexual revolutionaries could do the work of rehabilitating the figures at the bottom of the hierarchy. Transsexuals, transvestites, fetishists, sadomasochists, Sex workers by her own words. Those are her groups that she puts in this in this hierarchy at the bottom. And where does the process end? Well, that's logical conclusion. It's the abolition of restrictions on the behavior of the people at the bottom of that hierarchy. And the people that are at the bottom of that hierarchy were. Pedophiles. According to Ruben, this is not me. This is not me saying this. She uses uh, euphemisms like uh, boy lovers, uh, men who love underaged youth was another term she used. But Rubin makes her case clearly and emphatically in long passages throughout this essay. She denounces fears of child sex abuse as hysteria. She rails against anti-child porn laws. She argues for legalizing and normalizing the behavior of, quote, those whose eroticism transgresses generational boundaries. She says these men are not deviants. They are victims. Quote, like communists and homosexuals in the 1950s, boy lovers are so stigmatized that it's difficult to find defenders for their civil liberties, let alone for their erotic orientation. Consequently, she says, the police have feasted on them. Local police, the FBI, watchdog postal inspectors have joined to build a huge apparatus whose sole aim is to wipe out the community of men who love underaged youth. In 20 years or so, when some of the smoke has cleared, it will be much easier to show that these men have been the victims of a savage and undeserved witch hunt, she said. So this is, this is the initial underpinning of this theory. Where it, where it was born, essentially. Such positions, Christopher Rufo writes, are hardly idiosyncratic within the discipline of queer theory. The father figure of the ideology is Michel Foucault, the philosopher that Rubin relies upon for the philosoph- uh, for the philosophical grounding. He was a notorious sadomasochist who once joined scores of other prominent intellectuals to sign a petition to legalize adult child sex relationships in France. Foucault. Also haunted the underground sex scene in Western capitals. Okay, this is the guy that inspired the gender theory, radical gender theory. One of the uh, Rubin's collaborators is a, a, a woman named Pat Calafia, who later became a transgender man, who claimed that the American society had turned pedophiles into the new communists or witches and the n words. All of it. The family, the law, the religion, the culture, they were all vectors of oppression. And all of it has to go. The real story behind Drag Queen Story Hour, as told by Christopher Rufo at cityjournal.org. We went over the first part, which was Gail Rubin's essay, 1984, Thinking Sex, notes for a radical theory of the politics of sexuality. It's the first thing to understand. Second thing, he says, to understand Drag Queen story hour is to understand the historical development of the art of drag. It begins with a freed slave named William Dorsey Swan, who dressed in elaborate silk and satin women's costumes, called himself the Queen of Drag, and organized sexually charged soirees in his home in Washington, D.C. And... Uh, this went on through the like late 1800s. He got uh, arrested for a whole bunch of things, like one of which was like running a brothel. Um, and so you have the you have this form of you know protest and uh, oppression, right? You got that sort of that archetypal story going on. Drag became explicitly political 70 years later during the Stonewall riots of 1969 in which patrons of a gay bar in New York City rioted against police and began uh, began a wave of gay and lesbian political activism. Which, by the way, I can't believe Charlotte renamed Stonewall Street. I can't believe that. How anti-LGBT can you be? It's crazy. Um, anyway, drag was not a private performance at that point. Then it became a statement of public rebellion. The, the drag queens began using costume and performance To mock, to mock the fashion, the manners, and the mores of middle America. In time, the need to shock required the performers to push the limits. Anybody in the entertainment industry knows this. People in radio know this. Shock jocks, this is why they all burn out. And people, like, I'm not a shock jock, but this is why shock jocks don't last terribly long. Except for, yes, Howard Stern, blah, blah, blah. Because, in constantly having to push the envelope, you will eventually run afoul of you know FCC rules. You'll go too far because you have to keep trying to find ways to shock. And that's very difficult over the course of years and years and years. So the next critical turn then occurs in 1990 with the publication of Gender Trouble. This was uh, written by queer theorist Judith Butler. And she saturated queer theory with postmodernism. She provided a theory of social change based on the concept of performativity. Performativity. Gender Trouble's basic argument is, Western society has created a regime of compulsory heterosexuality, which has sought to enforce a singular, unitary notion of sex. And this crushes and obscures the true complexity and variation of biological sex and gender identity and sexual orientation and human desire. You've heard about the spectrum, right? You've heard, yeah, you've heard about the spectrum. Sexuality is a spectrum. And this is how you get to the idea that gender is different than sex. Unless, of course, we need it to be in order to reinterpret laws to, you know, give people new privileges and stuff. But whatever. Like, this is how you get all of these different ideas that get teased out. Because, see, it's all a construct. And what does radical gender theory require? The deconstruction of the construct, of this hierarchy. Right? So this is how you get to the point where there's nothing essential about man or woman or sex. They're all created and then recreated through historically contingent human culture. Or as Judith Butler puts it, they are all defined through their performance, which can change, which can shift. It can adapt across time and space. Right? This is why what is perceived to be feminine in different cultures at different times changes. Even uh, you look at like the the you know dress codes and stuff like women couldn't wear pants for a long time, that sort of stuff, right? Butler's theory of social change is that once the premise is established that gender is malleable and used as an instrument of power currently in favor of heterosexual normativity, Well, then the work of social reconstruction can begin. And the drag queen embodies Butler's theory of gender deconstruction. She says, quote, The performance of drag plays upon the distinction between the anatomy of the performer and the gender that is being performed. You know it's a guy, but he's dressed like a woman and acting in this, I've heard it referred to as woman face, sort of like blackface. But I guess I prefer, I think, femme face, if you're going to go that, like, if you're going to use this this face description, femme face, right? D- right. To give this outward appearance that you are something you're not. And then you're going to mock, right, the mores of society, the traditional roles, the thing that you're dressing up as, Right. By the 2000s, the performance of Drag had absorbed all of these elements. The social justice origin story of William Dorsey Swan, The carnal shock and awe of Gail Rubin. The ethereal postmodernism of Judith Butler. And it brought them all together onto the stage. The goal of Drag, following the themes of Butler and Rubin, is to obliterate stable conceptions of gender. And you do this... Through performance, and the purpose is to rehabilitate the bottom of the sexual hierarchy through the elevation of the marginal. I'll read that again. This is Christopher Rufo. The goal of drag is to obliterate stable conceptions of gender through performativity, and to rehabilitate the bottom of the sexual hierarchy through the elevation of the marginal. Right. Because the the sexual hierarchy, remember, according to Rubin's essay, right, she talked about the very bottom. These are the people that were uh, transsexuals, transvestites, fetishists, sadomasochists, sex workers, and pedophiles. And that's the point, is to elevate these through the performance. The final turn in the story of drag is, in some ways, the most surprising. Another faction began moving from the margins into the mainstream. Some drag queens, most notably the drag performer RuPaul, toned down the routines, pushed the ideology deep into the background, and then presented drag as just good old-fashioned, glamorous American fun. TV producers then packaged this new form of drag as reality programming that softened the image of the drag queen and assimilated the genre into mass media and consumer culture. And this provided an opportunity. Christopher Rufo writing at City Journal, the real story behind Drag Queen Story Hour, goes through the the ideology, the philosophy, how it started, and then talks about the final turn of the story where the politics got toned down, the ideology got toned down, and then it was all about just fun. It's all just, you know, this is fun. And then... TV producers started packaging it, just like reality TV, softening the image, and it provided an opportunity. As the queer theorist's vanguard intellectual project was running aground on incest and bestiality fantasies, the most enterprising among them took a different tack. Using the commercialization of drag and the goodwill associated with the gay and lesbian rights movement as a means of transforming drag performances into family-friendly events that could transmit a simplified version of queer theory to kids. There is a college professor and drag queen, a gender queer college professor and drag queen named Harris Kornstein, stage name Little Miss Hot Mess. And Little Miss Hot Mess published the manifesto for the movement. It was called Drag Pedagogy, which is Method of Teaching. The Playful Practice of Queer Imagination in Early Childhood. Kornstein, or Little Miss Hot Mess, and Harper Keenan. So you're going to hear, I'm going to call them K and K. Kornstein and, and Keenan. Keenan, by the way, is a female-to-male transgender queer theorist at the University of British Columbia. Uh, with, of course, the citations to Foucault and Judith Butler Their essay begins by applying queer theory's basic premise of social constructivism and heteronormativity to the education system. Of course, the professional visions... Sorry, this is from their essay. Quote, The professional vision of educators is often shaped to reproduce the state's normative vision of its ideal citizenry. In effect schooling functions as a way to straighten the child into a kind of captive alignment with the current parameters of that vision. To state it plainly, within the historical context of the USA and Western Europe, the institutional management of gender has been used as a way of maintaining racist and capitalist modes of reproduction. That's what their argument is. Let me assume that's true. Let me assume that's true. It's not wrong to then identify the counter offensive. No. Right. If if this is what you think has been occurring, this is what the proponents of this ideology say has been occurring, that this that the schools have been used in order to reinforce this heteronormative hierarchy, that they've been training generations of Americans and citizens in Western society, right, to adopt these constructed norms that are all just based on myth and nothing scientific at all. It's all just about oppression. So then is it wrong to identify that and to launch a counteroffensive? Because if we can all agree, finally, that schools are in fact the, the, the setting, the environment, the ecosystem... Where we transfer what our society and civilization values to the next generation. If that is, in fact, the case, we all agree on that now, don't we? Okay, so now we get to have a discussion about what it is you're trying to actually promote. And that brings us to your ideology. Because, remember, the first phase in their fight is always the same, which is to deny deny that the thing they are saying is actually what they're saying. No, 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 critical race theory doesn't exist. Oh, okay, maybe some people are doing something like it, but it's not really it. Okay, maybe it's really it, but, you know, it's, it's needed. And then eventually you get to the point where you're arguing about what the thing is. So can we just fast forward to that point? Because the authors of the piece, the K&K folks, uh, Little Miss Hotness, say to disrupt the dynamic, authors, the authors of this essay propose a new teaching method. And that teaching method is drag pedagogy bringing queer ways of knowing and being into the education of young children. This is an intellectual and political project that requires drag queens and activists to work towards undermining traditional notions of sexuality, replacing the biological family with the ideological family, and arousing transgressive sexual desires in young children. This is what they say. Right, The traditional life path for them, growing up, getting married, you know, working forty hours a week, raise a family, right? All of that is oppression. That is that's oppressive bourgeois norms. They have to be deconstructed and subverted. As the drag queens take the stage in their costumes, sexually suggestive costumes, K and K argued that their Cornstein ta- Kornstein and Keenan argue their task is to disrupt the quote binary between womanhood and manhood, to seed the room. With gender transgressive themes and to break the reproductive futurity of the nuclear family. Does this sound familiar? Does it sound? You, do you remember the, another organization that had the disruption and deconstruction of the nuclear family as one of its core tenets? An organization you were like, why would that organization have that as one of its tenets? It doesn't even seem to be something related. You remember what it was? Black Lives Matter. Yeah. And you recall the people who created Black Lives Matter, who headed it up, I mean, aside from the stealing all the money and all that, but uh, trained, radical, Marxist, and LGBT. Sexually monogamous marriage, all of which are considered mechanisms of heterosexual capitalist oppression. The Drag Queen Story Hour is, quote, family-friendly in the sense of family as a code word, and I actually knew this. I've said this before, and kudos to Christopher Rufo for pointing it out. And if you know, gay folks will tell you—at least they used to. I don't know if they still do anymore. I, I mean, they—they've told me so. Family is what they refer to each other as. Oh, they're family. That's what they mean when they say that they're part of our family. They're part of LGBT family. Um, and so when they say family-friendly. That's what they're talking about. It's an ideological family. It's not a biological family. Hannah Dyer is a queer pedagogist, and she has written, Queer Pedagogy and, by extension, Drag Pedagogy, seek to expose the very concept of childhood innocence as an oppressive heteropatriarchal illusion. So when you hear people say, Why can't they just let kids be kids? They're destroying childlike innocence, right? That's the intent. They don't they don't believe there is a thing called or there is a thing childhood innocence. They believe that is a system of oppression that that was created in order to oppress non-heteronormative kids other people in that hierarchy, right? The purpose is to subvert the system of heteronormativity which includes childhood innocence and re-engineer childhood sexuality from the ground up. And drag performances provide a visual, symbolic, and erotic method for achieving this. That's the point. That's the point. In fact, Kornstein and Keenan explicitly dismiss this idea that they're doing the, um, the drag queen story hours for acceptance and inclusion. No. They say that's just marketing language for cover. They say as an organization... Drag Queen Story Hour may be incentivized to recite lines about alignment with curricular standards and social-emotional learning in order to be legible within public education and philanthropic institutions. Drag itself ultimately does not take these utilitarian aims too seriously, but it is quite good at looking the part when necessary. It's just cover. It's just marketing. That's not the point. And this gambit has been remarkably successful. You can uh, read all about it at uh, city-journal.org, the real story behind Drag Queen Story Hour by Christopher Rufo.